And wherever we are, here we are. The immediate environment of your our feelings, impressions, energies, what feels present for us, where the pressures are, where the absences are, where the pleasures are, where the energies are shifting. That's where we live, our very intimate environment. This is the environment of meditation, uh, intimate environment, mm, with its different protocols. <laughs> basic protocol of the intimate environment is take a long breath out let your breath come in feel yourself grounded settled settling in use your breathing to settle yourself in on the present the past is not here future complexities is putting that aside it's ability we have human system is a wonderful system unsurpassed technology for releasing stress and for keeping fresh and breathing is the tried and tested classical means of doing so uh, through many many traditions and all schools of buddhism and yoga and you name it, neurology, all recognise the beneficial effect of breathing in and breathing out. <laughs> you know, I think it's given to us naturally. Don't have to learn too much except to go to it and stay with it and uh, really gather your, gather your presence, your attention, your awareness around it. Pivotal practice, pivotal teaching of the Buddha teaching for immediate health and immediate balance in the present right now and long-term liberation hmm. yeah. because as we all recognize our immediate environment our interim environment does go through some changes and one of the changes we get saddened we get shocked we get frightened we get angry, we get upset, we get knocked around, we get lost, we feel overwhelmed, we feel rushed off our feet, we feel lost and don't know what's going on and chaotic. You know? Our intimate environment shakes us up. You know? And it shakes us up because it's being triggered by not just by sights and sounds themselves, but by the meanings that sights and sounds carry perceptions, impressions, this is urgent, things are going wrong, she doesn't like me, something wrong with me, there's a group of people here, I don't feel comfortable with that, there's nobody here, I don't feel comfortable with that, you know, you know so this kind of immediate perceptual reflexes trigger is uh, activations, sankara, Pali word for it, sounds like jargon nowadays sankara who talks about sankara well i talk about it a lot <laughs> why do i keep talking about sankara <laughs> because it's a word that captures the key point of your intimate environment <laughs> we get activated 
we get stimulated, we get pressure, we get constricted, we get tense. And of course, we can get also the relief from that. We can desankara ourselves. <laughs> so desankara, the ultimate desankara is called asankata, unconditioned, unsankarad. Yeah. Mm. And that's what the liberation process is about. Mm. Of course, the Buddha took that to perfection and to completion. But, you know, recognize this is a gradual path. If we just desankara a few of these reflexes to some extent, we're still going to be, if we get less panic stricken, less shaken by our memories and fears, less reactive, we desankara a bit, then we're going to certainly be feeling better. And that is not just psychologically, it's even neurological results of overstressing. Because this sankara stuff, that's the term they used in the time of the Buddha. Nowadays we talk about neurology. Yeah. It's a complex topic, but basically we have nervous system that tells about pleasure and pain. And nervous system whereby we can send a trigger to our muscles to lift an arm or shake a leg or something, and it does it. That's the nervous system. But also we have an autonomous or autonomic nervous system. This means we don't have any say over that. At least the unawakened being doesn't have any say over that. This autonomous nervous system deals with the reflexes that we jump. Yeah, those reflexes. You see something startles you, your body jumps. It's embodied. Yeah, you can't say don't do it. it does. Mm-hmm. And uh, just mentioned a very obvious reflex, the fear reflex, probably the biggest prominent reflex the autonomous nervous system can give you because, of course, it's a matter of life and death. So it comes down loud and clear. You can't mistake it. Your body jumps, tightens up, prepares to resist or run. It's a very powerful and very easy to experience uh, reflex in your autonomic nervous system. But there are many more, or several more. This is a dominant one, or, you know, uh, a negative one, we could say. It's not negative because it's there to save our life. But it's a bit of a nuisance if it's happening all the time. Every time a door closes, you jump. <laughs> and so these reflexes can get the message that triggers them, the perception that triggers them. The threat message, for example, is something that we can do something about. Because these threat messages can get embedded in your nervous system. I don't want to go on too long on this preparatory thing but the nature of the autonomic nervous system that we come into this life with which actually is a fine mesh that wraps around all of the body through what the tissue is called fascia tissues it's a very fine tissue that wraps the entire body like a like a spider's web but finer than that so we come in already with that prepared But then for a human being, you know, what triggers threat is not just a tiger leaping, but also somebody looking with a disapproving frown on their face. Uh Uh-oh, in trouble. 
Yeah, that's a sign, right? That's a sign. They're not actually doing anything, just looking at it with a long gaze, frown on the face, you feel, uh-oh, threat. Right? Person in uniform clears their throat, looks at you with a clear eye, with intent gaze, you feel, uh-oh, could be in trouble here. <laughs> right? So this threat signal yeah, can get triggered by all kinds of um, impressions in the world around us. We learn them. First thing you learn as you're a baby, you see those upturned lips, smile, things are good. That's what you see. You see the mother's face, you see the lips turned up, okay, I'm okay. Lips turned down, uh-oh, problem, right? <laughs> face turns away, doesn't even look at you. That's not a threat, that's loss. There's grief. I'm lost, I'm alone, I'm left out, right? So then... These signals get embedded in the nervous system. And, uh, and then they trigger off not just these jumpy body reflexes, but of course heart reflexes. Right? Heart flutters, heart sags, the heart feels uncertain. And this heart, what is that? We talk about heart as a physical organ, but you all know what I mean, this sort of our sensitive, emotionally-based, intuitive, impulsive mind. Chitta, the word. Chitta. And the Buddha says, this chitta has been deluded and confused for a long time. But through practice, this chitta can be liberated from these floods and effects that keep it shaking and rattling. And all his practice path, all of it, all of the practice path is for this one aim, liberation of chitta. Right. So as many of these practices are to do with things we can definitely decide to do. Yeah. Focus on this. Stop doing that. Give attention to this. Some of it is more difficult, where you have to like, I can't stop feeling agitated. You know, I can say I can stop drinking or smoking or looking at the TV, but I can't stop feeling agitated and uncomfortable. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, then we should meditate. <laughs> yeah. Because this is with a meditation process is that which can train your attention, your awareness to, if you like, descend... If you if you descend is the word, because it's we call it subliminal or beneath our personal level of mind into something more basic, and it's this reflexive level, the reflexive level of sankara, right? That reflexive system, that autonomic system, meditation gives you a way to actually undo some of these reflexes and some that you didn't even know existed in. And the primary method the Buddha is recommending, recommends a whole raft of systems and I think any wise meditator is going to try to look at a few to cover 
you know, where their capacities are, where their potentials are. But the Buddha himself used mindfulness of breathing for this. This is how he practiced all kinds of practices, eventually got down to, well, you know, uh, we'll go into that later, but breathing in, breathing out, feeling comfortable and pleasant. Maybe this is the way. Path of pleasure. I teach pleasure, says the Buddha. This pleasure is not blameworthy. This pleasure is not involved with sensual gratification. This is a pleasure born of disengaging from sense contact and abiding in the heart. Breathing in, breathing out. Natural. No dogma, no pushing, no attitude other than openness and attentiveness. This is, this is oh, this is the way. I practiced it. I realized it. I found this is the way. Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. So this is the theme of this uh, session together. I don't expect during this session that we're going to in depth personally experience the complete process the Buddha went through, but we may pick up through these uh, talks and discussions and questions and practices and perhaps new angles on things. Ah, that bit, I get that. I hadn't realized that. I could work on that and you know, build up some resources and some know-how and some field notes on the way to cultivate this practice, which is a, a lifetime practice because all the time you are breathing in and breathing out. So you can always come to that. And all the time you're in your intimate environment of your own psychologies and nervous system and reflexes that challenges you drives you and can also be cultivated to give you a sense of stability and happiness as a basic standard not as a one-off flash moment through some exciting thing happening but the basic standard is you're fundamentally okay you know things go wrong but your intimate environment mm, okay I can be with that because it's got the ability that has developed to know its own stability and uh, to discharge some of these messages that are printed on it of our inadequacies or our urgencies or our sense of obligation or failure or whatever. This is a study practice session. Perhaps some people would like more practice, perhaps some people would like more study, but this is what you're getting, a mixture of the two. (laughs) Uh, Because basically, um, I think the text deserves respectful attention and exploration. It's the most detailed 
the only detailed really meditation practice the Buddha talked about in detail, in such detail. And even then it's still cryptic. But I think it this is the gift of an enlightened one. It thinks that deserves our attention to look actually at the letters, the words, and fathom what's meant there and also what isn't said, which I think is a great revelation. The earliest version we have, the earliest teachings we have, Anapanasati Siddha, the Pali Canon. And uh, the Pali Canon is pretty close to the time of the Buddha. It seems to have been formulated in the first 100, 200 years after the Buddha's death. Over generations, gradually, the Sangha began to discuss and work out you know, what's the core thing. We all agree upon this and these, this amazing corpus was um, laid down um, with obviously you know, a couple of generations perhaps of people really working on it uh, and remembering and trying to you know, get it all synchronized. But it does also appear in other traditions, in the Sanskrit versions, which seem to come sometimes from an earlier time, sometimes from a later time. So you've got this feeling like if you look in the Chinese canon, it's there. You look in the Tibetan canon, it's there. You look in the Pali canon, it's there. But the Pali canon is the most unbroken of all these uh, traditions that have been laid down. It is complete. And that's nothing else that's got that completion to it. So we look at that and... uh, Try also to work through or just contemplate some of the language. I don't know Pali. Like I've got a, an infant's, an infant's handling of Pali. I've got nothing more than that. And yet you can break open some of these words and look at actually what, what is being said there. Because what you will see primarily is an English translation of a Pali text. The Pali text itself is a formulated text. Yeah obviously done with some sense of authority. The English is people trying to find English words that would cover those terms. And of course, anybody who does translation will recognise it's not that easy. And when you're looking at such a different culture, you know, at such a different time, and the terminologies that were quite accessible and fluent in the time of the Buddha, which we don't have so much language for, including, of course, the word Sankara, which I've just mentioned. And you'll see maybe 10 different words or different phrases being used to try to translate this one core word because it's not an easy word to get in English. This is just one example. Unfortunately, it's a major piece. Another major piece is Chitta, which primarily is translated as mind, but when most of us hear the word mind, we will tend to go into our thinking apparatus, our cognitive object-defining intelligence. Right? The one that does to-do lists, um, it plans a journey, it figures things out, it does chemistry, mathematics, you know, it's great system, that's my mind. And uh, that's not actually what jitta's about. Um, so I tend to use the word heart with all its 
drawbacks. This isn't just some emotional experience, but it's the place where impulses arise, volition arises, urgency arises, love arises, hate arises. There's an arising, a, a directive, an impulse. It's the source of our actions. It's the source of why we think. When we feel uncertain, that's the heart experience of us start thinking. Mm. Thinking is an aspect of mind called manas, directed by the, the cognitive intelligence, which is very good at forming concepts. Chitta is not so good at concepts. It deals with what's felt and sensed, and it generates moods and shifts, chitta. So when we go through this sutta, you'll see that in many cases, he's talking about calming the mind, or say calming the heart. Uh, now, particularly when we come round to a word like concentration in English. Now, if you translate that as concentration of mind, you're going to get a rather different experience than say concentration of heart. Correct? When you concentrate your mind, you probably perhaps tighten up in your forehead. In your eyes, you concentrate in your heart. What do you do? You listen deeply. You remain attentive. Right? You're receptive. You're really reading what's happening for you. It's turning your attention back into yourself. Right? You concentrate your mind. You focus on some object. Right? Unification of heart is going to give a different experience than unification of mind. So, you know, play with the language. I'll be looking at that and encouraging that. Um, you see, I've prepared some sheets for you, some texts for you that you can look at, and I will try to go through them and talk you through them. Um, and you might see that the translations, I've taken them from different sources, so the translations may seem, um, they're not always the same. But uh, um, if you look in the translation of the Anapanasati Sutta, you'll see the particular terminology that I've decided upon as being something that's, well, it's what the Pali says in one way. And it's, it's really an amalgam of everybody else's translations. <laughs> Yeah. So take a look at those. Mm. But do remember, of course, that in the end of the day, these are just descriptions uh, of experience. And we've always got to come back to the naturalness and the subjectivity, the personal authenticity of the experience, which begins with something as simple authentic and natural as breathing in and breathing out and the effects that has. And a major point that um, I'll be making is that the focus primarily is not on the sensations. 
Now, as I've said, the practice of mindfulness as breathing is well documented, and over the millennia, various teachers and commentators have had it their particular angles or their gloss on what's going on, and we may have inherited um, particular ways of practicing mindfulness of breathing, and um, one of them naturally is the focusing on the sensations at the tip of the nose or the abdomen. And you'll note that in the Sutta, the Buddha doesn't mention this. So I would say that this is a possibility. One can do that. And there are certain benefits from focusing on sensations because sensations are readily pretty clear and you can sharpen your attention. But sensations aren't going to get you liberated. (laughs) You know, it's good for sharpening your attention Uh, if that's what you need. Hmm. But what I'm encouraging in the long term is aware of the energies associated with breathing in and breathing out. The energies associated with breathing in and breathing out. Which you're experiencing. You may not have thought of it that way, but when you breathe in you feel... So brightening, when you breathe out, you feel relaxing. There's an energetic shift. It's very obvious. When you want to do something, you take a deep breath in. Okay, here we go. You finished your work, you sit down, you breathe out. It's, it's, as, it's as obvious and as natural and as <laughs> jargon-free as that. Yeah? Uh, so that's the effect. Right? That effect and the subtle ramifications of that effect can permeate your entire autonomous nervous system to purify, clarify, clean, clear and liberate. And sensations aren't going to do that for you. And also focusing on sensations requires a different kind of attention than focusing on um, energies. It's great to to sharpen your attention, but when we're looking at uh, the whole uh, nervous affective system of the body, it's actually the whole body. When you when you feel frightened, it's not your arm doesn't jump; the whole thing jumps, (laughs) right? When you feel when you feel sad and depressed. Everything sags, the shoulders sag, the face sags, everything goes limp. The whole system shuts down or, or brightens up. When you feel happy and joyful, everything lights up. right? So that's the system we want to work with. And that's an energetic system. So for that you have to have the whole body awareness. As the Buddha does mention that, he doesn't mention focusing on a particular point, but he does mention focusing on whole body, thoroughly um, thoroughly sensitively feeling the entire body and this means not the body of sensation but the energy body that's my thesis anyway so now what are we going to do um, that is this is some outlines so tonight we are setting things up some of you have probably done quite a few of these online retreats before so you probably got a uh, 
a sense of how to moderate your lifestyle for these few days, how to moderate what's happening to you. Um, as I said, your intimate environment is affected by the external environment, you know, whether the things that are grabbing your attention, uh, things that you need to do, things you feel um, unhappy with. You try to create a cool, calm space that you're living in. Create your your temple, your meditation room, your meditation place. Now there's a he says a physicality to it, to that. And there's also a rhythm to it. So we don't just exist in space, we also exist in time, don't we? And time and space Time, specifically, very much so, is a very strong factor of our intimate environment. You know, because time is clock time. Time is something that um, has a sense of urgency to it. Time is always something's going to happen next. You see that clock, and it's this number's on it. It's going to change to something, and it's also mechanical. Bop, 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 one second at a time, moves forward. So we get trained by that. We become entrained by mechanical time. Now, you want to check that because it sets up certain expectations of things happening quickly, Yeah, uh, whatever that means. And... <laughs> come to you realize embodied time direct embodied time is not mechanical yeah so 10 seconds of pain is probably a lot longer than 10 seconds of pleasure <laughs> right walking for 20 minutes in the cold rain is a lot longer than walking for 20 minutes in warm sunshine. Right? And you say, no, it's not. Well, if you go directly into your, your bodied system, you say, oh, that was, a, that was such a long time. And nowadays, uh, you know, my email is taking 10 seconds to download. Why is it so slow? Why I think so slow? This 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 thing doesn't this gadget doesn't work. It should give me immediate, you know, not ten seconds, not even one second, but immediate. Mm. So those are the kinds of messages that have got built in about time, and they're not just theoretical messages. They have an effect on our nervous system, on how speedy we are, how impatient we are, how expecting the next thing we are, how we may be almost standing on our toes, wanting the next thing to happen. And no, just back. So try to generate a time environment where you let yourself off the hook of time. You know, 
make yourself off the hook of time. Try to follow your body. If you can, what your lifestyle is about. When you're awake, you're awake. You're breathing in and out. Use it. When you feel too tired, take a rest. You can rest either by directly, you know, lying down, sleeping for 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour, or you could just walk up and down a little bit, freshen up. So you can really like making your environment work for you rather than feel trapped in it. I think one of the drawbacks that can occur in retreats is the sense of time. You know, I mean, it's it's certainly, when you say you're going to sit here for 45 minutes, but it's good in a sense, you know, you say, well, let's get resolved and let's be patient with things. But you can get a bit mechanical with it too. So using, using time, like what does the body, what does the heart, what works, when you can use resolve, how do you use resolve? When do you say, oh, it's nine o'clock, that's enough, or it's eight o'clock, it's this, or it's seven o'clock, it's this. When do you say, actually, what's happening in the body and heart? And particularly in retreat time, we want to look at things very, you know, broad picture, like, you know, life is precious and it doesn't last. <laughs> uh, so a pretty constant recollection I have is, you know, your life is as long as one breath. If it doesn't come in, that's it. <laughs> right? And one day it won't. And you don't know when that will be. So while it's there, while it's there, even if you don't feel that good, that great, while it's there, you know, make an effort with it. Apply yourself. Challenge some of the other things we feel we want to talk about or do. Keep it focused. And this is focus, it's not a narrow pointed focus, it's a focus of of heart, focus of what's what's important, where the priorities are. So let's try to prioritize this particular theme, which is not just a focus on breathing, but a focus on embodiment, listening to the body, using breathing to moderate what's happening in your body, in your nervous system which affects your body and your heart, using it to moderate that, yes, uh, and tuning into that. This is where the enlightenment factors arise and this is the area that's obstructed by powerful um, tendencies and corruptions.